CD6. The history monks had done their job well, but their biggest ally was the human ability to think narratively. And humans had risen to the occasion. They'd say things like, Thursday already? What happened to the week? And time seems to go a lot faster these days. And it seems like only yesterday. But some things remained. The monks had carefully wiped out the time when the glass clock had struck. It had been surgically removed from history. Almost. Susan picked up grim fairy tales again. Her parents hadn't bought her books like this when she was a child. They'd tried to bring her up normally. They knew that it is not entirely a good idea for humans to be too close to death. They taught her that facts were more important than fancy. And then she'd grown up and found that the real fantasies weren't the pale rider or the tooth fairy or bogeymen. They were all solid facts. The big fantasy was that the world was the place where the toast didn't care if it came butterside down or not where logic was sensible, and where things could be made not to have happened. Something like the glass clock had been too big to hide. It had leaked out via the dark, hidden labyrinths of the human mind, and had become a folk tale. People had tried to coat it with sugar and magic swords, but its true nature still lurked like a rake in an overgrown lawn, ready to rise up at the incautious foot. Now someone was treading on it again, and the point, the key point was that the chin it was rising to meet belonged to someone like me. She sat and stared at nothing for a while. Around her, historians climbed library ladders, fumbled books onto their lecterns, and generally rebuilt the image of the past to suit the eyesight of today. One of them was, in fact, looking for his glasses. Time had a son, she thought. Someone who walks in the world... There was a man who devoted himself to the study of time so wholeheartedly that, for him, time became real. He learned the ways of time, and time noticed him, Death had said. There was something there, like love. And time had a son. How? Susan had the kind of mind that would sour a narrative with a question like that. Time and a mortal man. How could they ever... Well, how could they? Then she thought, my grandfather is death. He adopted my mother. My father was his apprentice for a while. That's all that happened. They were both human, and I turned up in the normal way. There is no way I should be able to walk through walls and live outside time and be a little bit immortal, but I am, and so this is not an area where logic and, let's face it, basic biology have any part to play. In any case, time is constantly creating the future. The future contains things that didn't exist in the past. A small baby should be easy for something, someone, that rebuilds the universe once every instant. Susan sighed. And you had to remember that time probably wasn't time, in the same way that death wasn't exactly the same as death, and war wasn't exactly the same as war. She'd met war, a big fat man with an inappropriate sense of humour and a habit of repeating himself, and he certainly didn't personally attend every minor fracas. She disliked pestilence, who gave her funny looks, and famine was just wasted and weird. None of them ran their, call it their discipline, they personified it. Given that she'd met the tooth fairy, the soul-cake duck and old man trouble, it amazed Susan that she'd grown up to be mostly human, nearly normal. 
As she stared at her notes, her hair unwound itself from its tight bun and took up its ground state position, which was that of someone who had just touched something highly electrical. It spread out around her head like a cloud, with one black streak of nearly normal hair. Grandfather might be an ultimate destroyer of worlds and the final truth of the universe, but that wasn't to say he didn't take an interest in the little people. Perhaps time did, too. She smiled. Time waited for no man, they said. Perhaps she'd waited for one once. Susan was aware that someone was looking at her, turned and saw the death of rats, peering through the lens of the glasses belonging to the mildly distracted man, searching for them on the other side of the room. Up on a long disregarded bust of a former historian, the raven preened itself. Well, she said, squeak. Oh, he is, is he? The doors of the library were nuzzled open, and a white horse walked in. There is a terrible habit amongst horsey people to call a white horse grey, but even one of that bow-legged fraternity would have had to admit that this horse, at least, was white. Not as white as snow, which is a dead white, but at least as white as milk, which is alive. His bridle and reins were black, and so was the saddle, but all of them were in a sense just for show. If the horse of death was inclined to let you ride him, then you'd stay on, saddle or no. And there was no upper limit to the number of people he could carry. After all, plagues sometimes happened suddenly. The historians paid him no attention. Horses did not walk into libraries. Susan mounted. There were plenty of times when she wished she'd been born completely human and wholly normal, but the reality was she'd give it all up tomorrow. Apart from Binky. A moment later... Four hoof-prints glowed like plasma in the air above the library, and then faded away. Tick! The crunch-crunch of the Yeti's feet over the snow and the eternal wind of the mountains were the only sounds. Then Lobsang said, "'Why, cut off his head, do you actually mean—' "'Sever the head from the body,' said Lutsay. "'And,' said Lobsang, still in the tones of one carefully exploring every aspect of the haunted cave— "'He doesn't mind?' "'Well, it's a nuisance,' said the Yeti. "'Bit of a party trick, but it's okay if it helps. "'The sweeper has always been a good friend to us. "'We owe him favours.' "'I've tried teaching him the way,' said Lutze proudly. "'Yours very useful. "'A washed pot never boils,' said the Yeti. "'Curiosity vied with annoyance in Lobsang's head and won. "'What have I missed here?' he said. "'You don't die.' I don't die, with my head cut off, for laughing, ho, ho, said the Yeti. Of course I die, but this is not such a sizable transaction. It took us years to work out what the Yetis were up to, said Lutzay. Their loops played hob with the mandala until the abbot worked out how to allow for them. They've been extinct three times. Three times, eh, said Lobsang. That's a lot of times to go extinct. I mean, most species only manage it once, don't they? The Yeti was entering taller forest now, of ancient pines. This'll be a good place, said Lutze. Put us down, sir. And we'll chop your head off, said Lobsang weakly. What am I saying? I'm not going to chop anyone's head off. You heard him say it doesn't worry him, said Lutze, as they were gently lowered to the ground. That's not the point, said Lobsang hotly. It's his head, Lutze pointed out. "'But I mind.' "'Oh, well, in that case,' said Lutze, "'is it not written? "'If you want a thing done properly, "'you've got to do it yourself.' 
Yours it is, said the Yeti. Lutsay took the sword out of Lobsang's hand. He held it carefully, like someone unused to weapons. The Yeti obligingly knelt. You're up to date, said Lutsay. Yours. I cannot believe you're really doing this, said Lobsang. Interesting, said Lutsay. Mrs. Cosmopolite says seeing is believing, and strangely enough, the great Wen said, I have seen and I believe. He brought the sword down and cut off the Yeti's head. Tick. There was a sound rather like a cabbage being sliced in half, and then a head rolled into the basket to cheers and cries of, Oh, I say, well done, from the crowd. The city of Quirm was a nice, peaceful, law-abiding place, and the city council kept it that way with a penal policy that combined the maximum of deterrence with the minimum of reoffending. Gripper the butcher smarts. The late Gripper rubbed his neck. I demand a retrial, he said. This may not be a good time, said Death. Couldn't possibly have been murder, because the... The soul of Gripper Smarts fumbled in its spectral pockets for a ghostly piece of paper, unfolded it, and continued, in a voice of those to whom the written word is an uphill struggle, "'Because the bell ends of my mind was de-disturbed.' "'Really?' said Death. He found it best to let the recently departed get things off their chest. "'Yes, cos I really, really wanted to kill him, right?' And you can't tell me that's a normal frame of mind, right? He was a dwarf anyway, so I don't think that should count as manslaughter. I understand that was the seventh dwarf you killed, said Death. I'm very prone to being disturbed, said Gripper. Really, it's me who's the victim here. All I needed was a bit of understanding, someone to see my point of view for five minutes. What was your point of view? All dwarfs need a damn good kicking, in my opinion. Here, you're deaf, right? Yes, indeed. I'm a big fan. I've always wanted to meet you, you know. I got a tattoo of you on my arm. Look here, done it myself. The benighted gripper turned at the sound of hooves. A young woman in black, entirely unregarded by the crowd, who were gathered around the food stalls and souvenir stands and the guillotine, was leading a large white stallion towards them. "'And you've even got valet parking,' said Gripper. "'Now that's what I call style.' "'And with that he faded. "'What a curious person,' said Death. "'Ah, Susan, thank you for coming. "'Our search narrows.' "'Our search?' "'Your search, in fact.' "'It's just mine now, is it?' "'I have something else to attend to.' "'More important than the end of the world?' "'It is the end of the world.' The rules say that the horseman shall ride out. That old legend? But you don't have to do that. It is one of my functions. I have to obey the rules. Why? They're breaking the rules. Bending them. They have found a loophole. I do not have that kind of imagination. It was like Jason and the battle for the stationery cupboard, Susan told herself. You soon learned that no one is to open the door of the stationery cupboard was a prohibition that a seven-year-old simply would not understand. You had to think and rephrase it in more immediate terms, like, 
No one, Jason, no matter what, no, not even if they thought they heard someone shouting for help, and no one, are you paying attention, Jason, is to open the door of the stationery cupboard or accidentally fall on the door handle so that it opens, or threaten to steal Richenda's teddy bear unless she opens the door of the stationery cupboard, or be standing nearby when a mysterious wind comes out of nowhere and blows the door open all by itself. Honestly, it really did. Or in any way open, cause to open, ask anyone else to open, jump up and down on the loose floorboard to open, or in any other way seek to obtain entry to the stationery cupboard, Jason. A loophole, said Susan. Yes. Well, why can't you find one too? I am the Grim Reaper. I do not think people wish me to get creative. They would wish me to do the task assigned to me at this time by custom and practice. And that's just riding out? Yes. Where to? Everywhere, I think. In the meantime, you will need this. Death handed her a lifetimer. It was one of the special ones, slightly bigger than normal. She took it reluctantly. It looked like an hourglass, but all those little glittering shapes tumbling through the pinch were seconds. "'You know I don't like doing the the whole scythe thing,' she said. "'It's not, hey, this is really heavy.' "'He is Lutze, a history monk, eight hundred years old. "'He has an apprentice, I have learned this. "'But I cannot feel him, I cannot see him. "'He is the one Binky will take you to the monk. You will find the child. And then what? I suspect he will need someone. When you have found him, let Binky go. I shall need him. Susan's lips moved as a memory collided with a thought. To ride out on, she said. Are you really talking about the apocalypse? Are you serious? No one believes in that sort of thing any more. I do. Susan's jaw dropped. "'You're really going to do that, knowing everything you know?' Death patted Binky on the muzzle. "'Yes,' he said. Susan gave her grandfather a sideways look. "'Hold on, there's a trick, isn't there? You're planning something and you're not even going to tell me, right? You're not really going to just wait for the world to end and celebrate it, are you?' "'We will ride out.' "'No!' You will not tell the rivers not to flow. You will not tell the sun not to shine. You will not tell me what I should and should not do. But it's so... Susan's expression changed and death flinched. I thought you cared. Take this also. Without wanting to, Susan took a smaller lifetimer from her grandfather. She may talk to you. And who is this? "'The midwife,' said Death. "'Now find the sun.' He faded. Susan looked down at the lifetimers in her hands. "'He's done it to you again,' she screamed at herself. "'You don't have to do this, and you can put this thing down, "'and you can go back to the classroom, and you can be normal again, "'and you just know that you won't, and so does he. "'Squeak!' "'The death of rats was sitting between Binky's ears.' "'grasping a lock of the white mane, "'giving the general impression of someone anxious to be going. "'Susan raised a hand to slap him off, and then stopped herself. "'Instead, she pushed the heavy lifetimers into the rat's paws. 
Make yourself useful, she said, grasping the reins. Why do I do this? Squeak! I have not got a nice nature. Tick. There was not, surprisingly, a great deal of blood. The head rolled into the snow and the body slowly toppled forward. Now you've killed... Lobsang began. Just a second, said Lutze. Any moment now. The headless body vanished. The kneeling yeti turned his head to Lutze, blinked and said, That's doing a bit. Sorry. Lutze turned to Lobsang. Now, hold on to that memory, he commanded. It'll try to vanish, but you've had training. You've got to go on remembering that you saw something that now did not happen, understand? Remember that time's a lot less unbending than people think if you get your head right. Just a little lesson. Seeing is believing. How did it do that? Good question. They can save their life up to a certain point and go back to it if they get killed, said Lutze. How it's done? Well, the abbot spent the best part of a decade working that one out. Not that anyone else can understand it. There's a lot of quantum involved. He took a pull of his permanent foul cigarette. Got to be good working out if no one else can understand it. The Yeti of the Ramtops, where the Discworld's magical field is so intense that it is part of the very landscape, are one of the few creatures to utilise control of personal time for genetic advantage. The result is a kind of physical premonition. You find out what is going to happen next by allowing it to happen. Faced with danger, or any kind of task that involves risk of death, a yeti will save its life up to that point, and then proceed with all due caution, yet in the comfortable knowledge that, should everything go pancake-shaped, it will wake up at the point where it saved itself, with, and this is the important part, knowledge of the events which have just happened, but which will not now happen, because it's not going to be such a damn fool next time. This is not quite the paradox it appears, because, after it has taken place, it hasn't happened. All that actually remains is a memory in the Yeti's head, which merely turns out to be a remarkably accurate premonition. The little eddies in time caused by all this are just lost in the noise of all the kinks, dips and knots put in time by every other living creature. "'How is there Abbot these days?' said the Yeti, getting to its feet again and picking up the pilgrims. "'Tathing!' "'Ah, oh, reincarnation's always a problem,' said the Yeti falling into its long, ground-eating lope. Tea for the worst, he says. Always coming or going. How fast are we going? The Yeti's stride was more like a continuous series of leaps from one foot to the other. There was so much spring in the long legs that each landing was a mere faint rocking sensation. It was almost restful. I reckon we're doing thirty miles an hour or so clock time, said Lutze. Get some rest. We'll be above Copperhead in the morning. It's all downhill from there. Coming back from the dead, Lobsang murmured. It's more like not actually ever going in the first place, said Lutze. I've studied them a bit, but, well, unless it's built in, you'd have to learn how to do it. And would you want to bet on getting it right first time? Tricky one. Tick. Susan recognised the country of Lanka from the air, a little bowl of woods and fields perched like a nest on the edge of the Ramtop Mountains. And she found the cottage, too, which was not the corkscrew-chimneyed compost-heap kind of witch's house popularised by grim fairy tales and other books, but a spanking new one with gleaming thatch and a manicured front lawn. 
There were more ornaments, gnomes, toadstools, pink bunnies, big idea, around a tiny pond than any sensible gardener should have allowed. Susan spotted one brightly painted gnome fishy. No, that wasn't a rod he was holding, was it? Surely a nice old lady wouldn't put something like that in her garden, would she? Would she? Susan was bright enough to go round to the back, because witches were allergic to front doors. The door was opened by a small, fat, rosy-cheeked woman, whose little current eyes said, Yep, that's my gnome all right, and be thankful he's only whittling in the pond. Mrs. Og, uh, the midwife. There was a pause before Mrs. Og said, The very same? You don't know me, but, said Susan, and realised that Mrs. Og was looking past her at Binky, who was standing by the gate. The woman was a witch, after all. "'Maybe I do know you,' said Mrs. Og. "'Of course, if you just stole that horse, "'you just don't know how much trouble you're in.' "'I borrowed it. "'The owner is my grandfather.' "'Another pause, "'and it was disconcerting how those friendly little eyes "'could bore into yours like an auger. "'You'd better come in,' said Mrs. Og. "'The inside of the cottage was as clean and new as the outside. "'Things gleamed, and there were a lot of them to gleam.' The place was a shrine to bad but enthusiastically painted china ornaments which occupied every flat surface. What space was left was full of framed pictures. Two harassed-looking women were polishing and dusting. "'I got company,' said Mrs. Og sternly, and the women left with such alacrity that the word fled might have been more appropriate. "'My daughters-in-law,' said Mrs. Og, sitting down on a plump armchair, which over the years had shaped itself to fit her. "'They like to help a poor old lady who's all alone in the world.' Susan took in the pictures. If they were all family members, Mrs. Og was the head of an army. Mrs. Og, unashamedly caught out in a flagrant lie, went on, "'Sit down, girl, and say what's on your mind. There's tea brewing.' "'I need to know something.' "'Most people do,' said Mrs. Og, "'and they can go on wanting.' "'I want to know about a birth,' said Susan, persevering. "'Oh, yes.' Well, I'd done hundreds of confinements, thousands probably. I imagined this one was difficult. A lot of them are, said Mrs. Og. You'd remember this one. I don't know how it started, but I'd imagine a stranger came knocking. Oh? Mrs. Og's face became a wall. The black eyes stared out at Susan as if she was an invading army. You're not helping me, Mrs. Og. That's right, I ain't, said Mrs. Og. I think I know about you, miss, but I don't care who you are, you see. "'You can go and get the other one if you like. "'Don't think I ain't seen him, neither. "'I've been at plenty of deathbeds, too, "'but deathbeds is public, mostly, and birthbeds ain't. "'Not if the lady don't want them to be. "'So you get the other one, and I'll spit in his eye.' "'This is very important, Mrs. Og. "'You're right there,' said Mrs. Og firmly. "'I can't say how long ago it was. "'It may have been last week, even. "'Time, that's the key.' "'And there it was.' Mrs. Og was not a poker player, at least against someone like Susan. There was the tiniest flicker of the eyes. Mrs. Og's chair was rammed back in her effort to rise, but Susan got to the mantelpiece first and snatched what was there, hidden in plain view amongst the ornaments. "'You give that here!' shouted Mrs. Og, as Susan held it out of her reach. She could feel the power in the thing. It seemed to pulse in her hand. "'Have you any idea what this is, Mrs. Og?' she said opening her hand to reveal the little glass bulbs. "'Yes, it's an egg-timer that don't work.' Mrs. Og sat down hard in her overstuffed chair, 
so that her little legs rose off the floor for a moment. "'It looks to me like a day, Mrs. Ogg, a day's worth of time.' Mrs. Ogg glanced at Susan, and then at the little hourglass in her hand. "'I reckoned there was something odd about it,' she said. "'The sand don't go through when you tip it up, see?' "'That's because you don't need it to yet, Mrs. Ogg.' Nanny Ogg appeared to relax. Once again Susan reminded herself that she was dealing with a witch. They tended to keep up. "'I kept it cause it was a gift,' said the old lady. "'And it looks so pretty, too. "'What do them letters around the edge say?' Susan read the words etched on the metal base of the lifetimer. "'Tempus Redux.' "'Time returned,' she said. "'Ah, that'd be it,' said Mrs. Ogg. "'The man did say I'd be repaid for my time.' "'The man?' said Susan gently. "'Nanny Ogg glanced up, her eyes ablaze. "'Don't you try to take advantage of me "'just cos I'm momentarily a bit flustered,' she snapped. "'There's no way round Nanny Ogg.' "'Susan looked at the woman, "'and this time not with the lazy eye. "'And there was indeed no way around Mrs. Ogg, "'but there was another way, with Mrs. Ogg. "'It went straight through the heart. "'A child needs to know his parents, Mrs. Ogg,' she said. "'Now more than ever.' He needs to know who he really is. It's going to be hard for him, and I want to help him. Why? Because I wish someone had helped me, said Susan. Yes, but there's rules to midwifery, said Nanny Ogg. You don't say what was said or what you saw, not if the lady don't want you to. The witch wriggled awkwardly in her chair, her face going red. She wants to tell me, Susan knew. She's desperate to, but I've got to play it right so she can square it with herself. "'I'm not asking for names, Mrs. Ogg, because I expect you don't know them,' she went on. "'That's true. But the child... Look, miss, I'm not supposed to tell a living soul about... "'If it helps. I'm not entirely certain that I am one,' said Susan. "'She watched Mrs. Ogg for a while. "'But I understand. There have to be rules, don't there? Thank you for your time.' "'Susan stood up and put the preserved day back on the mantelpiece. "'Then she walked out of the cottage, shutting the door behind her.' Binky was waiting by the gate. She mounted up, and it wasn't until then that she heard the door open behind her. "'That's what he said,' said Mrs. Ogg, "'when he gave me the egg-timer. "'Thank you for your time, Mrs. Ogg,' he said. "'You'd better come back in, my girl.' Tick. Death found pestilence in a hospice in Chlamedos. Pestilence liked hospitals. There was always something for him to do. Currently he was trying to remove the now-wash-your-hands sign over a cracked basin. He looked up. "'Oh, it's you,' he said. "'Soap? I'll give them soap.' "'I sent out the call,' said Death. "'Oh, yeah, right, yes,' said Pestilence, clearly embarrassed. "'You've still got your horse?' "'Of course, but—' "'You had a fine horse.' "'Look, Death, it's—look, it's not that I don't see your point, but—excuse oh, me.' Pestilence stepped aside as a white-robed nun, completely ignorant of the two horsemen, passed between them. But he took the opportunity to breathe in her face. "'Just a mild flu,' he said, catching Death's expression. "'So we can count on you, can we?' "'To ride out?' "'Yes.' "'For the big one?' "'It's expected of us.' "'How many of the others have you got?' "'You are the first. "'Um...' Death sighed. Of course, there had been plenty of diseases long before humans had been around, but humans had definitely created pestilence. They had a genius for crowding together, for poking around in jungles, for sighting the midden so handily next to the well. Pestilence was, therefore, part human, 
with all that this entailed, he was frightened. I see, he said. The way you put it, you are afraid. I'll think about it. Yes, I am sure you will. Tick. Quite a lot of brandy splashed into Mrs. Ogg's mug. She waved the bottle vaguely at Susan with an inquiring look. No, thank you. Fair enough, fair enough. Nanny Ogg put the bottle aside and took a draught of the brandy as though it were beer. A man came knocking, she said. Three times he came in my life. Last time was, oh, maybe ten days ago. Same man every time. He wanted a midwife. Ten days ago, said Susan, but the boy's at least six... She stopped. Ah, you've got it, said Mrs Ogg. I could see you was bright. Time didn't matter to him. He wanted the best midwife. And it was like he'd found out about me but got the date wrong. Just like you or me could knock on the wrong door. Can you understand what I mean? More than you think, said Susan. The third time, another gulp at the brandy, he was in a bit of a state, said Mrs Ogg. That's how I knew he was just a man, despite everything that happened after. It was because he was panicking, to tell you the truth. Pregnant fathers often panic. He was going on about me coming right away, and how there was no time. He had all the time in the world, he just wasn't thinking properly. Because husbands never do when the time comes. They panic because it ain't their world any more. And what happened next, said Susan. He took me in his... Well, it was like one of them old chariots. He took me to... Mrs Ogg hesitated. "'I've seen a lot of strange things in my life, I'll have you know,' she said, as if preparing the ground for a revelation. "'I can believe it. "'It was a castle made of glass.' Mrs Ogg gave Susan a look, which dared her to disbelieve. Susan decided to hurry things up. "'Mrs Ogg, one of my earliest memories is of helping to feed the pale horse. "'You know, the one outside, the horse of death.' His name is Binky, so please don't keep stopping. There is practically no limit to the things I find normal. There was a woman. Well, eventually there was a woman, said the witch. Can you imagine someone exploding into a million pieces? Yeah, I expect you can. Well, imagine it happening the other way. There is a mist and it's all flying together and then whoosh, there is a woman. Then whoosh, back into a mist again. And all the time this noise... Mrs. Ogg ran her finger round the edge of the brandy glass, making it hum. A woman kept incarnating and then disappearing again. Why? Because she was frightened, of course. First time, see? Mrs. Ogg grinned. I personally never had any problems in that area, but I've been at a lot of births when it's all new to the girl, and she'll be frightened as hell, and when push comes to shove, if you take my meaning, she'll be yelling and swearing at the father, and I reckon that she'd give anything to be somewhere else. Well, this lady could be somewhere else. We'd have been in a real pickle if it wasn't for the man, as it turned out. The man that brought you. He was kind of foreign, you know, like the other people. Bald as a coot. I remember thinking, you look like a young man, mister, but you look like you've been a young man for a long, long time, if I'm any judge. Normally, I wouldn't have any man there, but he sat and talked to her in his foreign lingo and sang her songs and little poems and soothed her and back she came, out with thin air, and I was ready and it was one, two, done. Then she was gone, except that she was still there, I think, in, in the air. What does she look like? said Susan. Mrs Ogg gave her a look. You've got to remember the view I got where I was sitting, she said. The kind of description I might give you ain't a thing anyone will put on a poster if you get my meaning. And no woman looks at her breast at a time like that. She was young, she had dark hair. 
Mrs. Og refilled her brandy glass, and this meant the pause went on for some time. And she was old, too, if you're after the truth of it. Not old like me, I mean old. She stared at the fire. Old like darkness and stars, she said to the flames. The boy was left outside the thieves' guild, said Susan, to break the silence. I suppose they thought that with gifts like that, he'd be all right. The boy? He? What do you mean, he? Tick. Lady Lejean was being strong. She'd never realised how much humans were controlled by their bodies. The thing nagged night and day. It was always too hot, too cold, too empty, too full, too tired. The key was discipline, she was sure. Auditors were immortal. If she couldn't tell her body what to do, she didn't deserve to have one. Bodies were a major human weakness. Senses, too. The auditors had hundreds of senses, since every possible phenomenon had to be witnessed and recorded. She could find only five available now. Five ought to be easy to deal with, but they were wired directly into the rest of the body. They didn't just submit information, they made demands. She'd walked past a stall selling roasted meats, and her mouth had started to drool. The sense of smell wanted the body to eat without consulting the brain. But that wasn't the worst part. The brain itself did its own thinking. That was the hardest part. The bag of soggy tissue behind the eyes worked away independently of its owner. It took in information from the senses and checked them against memory and presented options. Sometimes the hidden parts of it even fought for control of the mouth. Humans weren't individuals, they were, each one, a committee. Some of the other members of the committee were dark and red and entirely uncivilised. They had joined the brain before civilization. Some of them had got aboard even before humanity. And the bit that did the joined-up thinking had to fight in the darkness of the brain to get the casting vote. After little more than a couple of weeks as a human, the entity that was Lady Lejean was having real trouble. Food, for example... Auditors did not eat. They recognised that feeble life-forms had to consume one another to obtain energy and bodybuilding material. The process was astonishingly inefficient, however, and her ladyship had tried assembling nutrients directly out of the air. This worked, but the process felt... What was the word? Oh, yes. Creepy. Besides, part of the brain didn't believe it was getting fed and insisted that it was hungry. "'Its incessant nagging interfered with her thought processes, "'and so, despite everything, she'd had to face up to the whole... "'well, the whole orifices business. "'The auditors had known about these for a long time. "'The human body appeared to have up to eight of them. "'One didn't seem to work, and the rest appeared to be multifunctional, "'although, surprisingly, there looked to be only one thing "'that could be done by the ears. "'So yesterday she'd tried a piece of dried toast. "'It had been the single worst experience of her existence. It had been the single most intense experience of her existence. It had been something else too. As far as she could understand the language, it had been enjoyable. It seemed that the human sense of taste was quite different from the sense as employed by an auditor. That was precise, measured, analytical. But the human sense of taste was like being hit in the mouth by the whole world. It had been half an hour of watching fireworks in her head before she remembered to swallow. How did humans survive this? She'd been fascinated by the art galleries. 
It was clear that some humans could present reality in a way that made it even more real, that spoke to the viewer, that seared the mind. But what could possibly transcend the knowledge that the genius of an artist had to poke alien substances into his face? Could it be that humans had got used to it? And that was only the start. The sooner the clock was finished, the better. A species as crazy as this couldn't be allowed to survive. She was visiting the clockmaker and his ugly assistant every day now, giving them as much help as she dared, but they always seemed one vital step away from completion. Amazing. She could even lie to herself. Because another voice in her head, which was part of the dark committee, said, "'You're not helping, are you? You're stealing parts and twisting parts, and you go back every day because of the way he looks at you, don't you?' Parts of the internal committee that were so old that they didn't have voices, only direct control of the body, tried to interfere at this point, and she tried to put them out of her mind. And now she had to face the other auditors. They would be punctual. She pulled herself together. Water had taken to running out of her eyes lately for no reason at all. She did the best she could with her hair and made her way to the large drawing-room. Greyness was already filling the air, in this space, there was not room for too many auditors, but that did not really matter. One could speak for all. Lady Lejean found the corners of her mouth turned up automatically as nine of them appeared. Nine was three threes, and the auditors liked threes. Two would keep an eye on the other one. Each two would keep an eye on each other one. They don't trust themselves, said one of the voices in her head. Another voice cut in, it's we. We don't trust ourselves. And she thought, oh yes, we, not they. I must remember I'm a we. An auditor said, why is there no further progress? The corners of the mouth turned down again. There have been minor problems of precision and alignment, said Lady Lejean. She found that her hands were rubbing themselves together slowly and wondered why she hadn't told them to. Auditors had never needed body language so they didn't understand it. One said, What is the nature of... But another one cut in with, Why are you dwelling in this building? The voice was tinted with suspicion. The body requires one to do things that cannot be done on the street, said Lady Lejean, and because she'd got to know something about Ankh Morpork, she added, At least on many streets. Also, I believe the servant of the clockmaker is suspicious. I have allowed the body to yield to gravity, since that is what it was designed for. It is as well to give the appearance of humanity. One, and it was the same one, said, And what is the meaning of these? It had noticed the paints and the easel. Lady Lejean wished fervently that she'd remembered to put them away. The one said, You are making an image with pigments. Yes, very badly, I'm afraid, one said. For what reason? I wish to see how humans do it. One said, That is simple. The eye receives the input. The hand applies the pigment. That's what I thought, but it appears to be much more complex than that. The one who had raised the question of the painting drifted towards one of the chairs and said, And what is this? It is a cat. It arrived. It does not appear to wish to depart. 
The cat, a feral ginger tom, flicked a serrated ear and curled up in a tighter ball. Anything that could survive in Ankh Morpork's alleys, with their abandoned swamp dragons, dog packs and furriers' agents, was not about to even open one eye for a bunch of floating nightdresses. The one who was now getting on Lady Lejean's nerves said, "'And the reason for its presence?' "'It appears to tolerate the company of hum... "'of apparent humans, asking nothing in return but food, water, shelter and comfort,' said Lady Lejean. "'This interests me. Our purpose is to learn, and thus I have, as you can see, begun.' She hoped it sounded better to them than it did to her. One said, "'When will the clock problems you spoke of be resolved?' "'Oh, soon, very soon, yes.' The one that was beginning to terrify Lady Lejean said, "'We wonder. Is it possible that you are slowing the work in some way?' Lady Lejean felt a prickling on her forehead. Why was it doing that? No, why should I slow the work? There would be no logic to it. One said, Hmm. And an auditor did not say, Hmm, by accident. Hmm had a very precise meaning. It went on, You are making moisture on your head. Yes, it's a body thing. One said, Yes, and that too had a very specific and ominous meaning. One said, We wonder if too long in a solid body weakens resolve. Also, we find it hard to see your thoughts. Body again, I'm afraid. The brain is a very imprecise instrument. Lady Lejean got control of her hands at last. One said, Yes. Another said, When water fills a jug, it takes the shape of the jug. But the water is not the jug, nor is the jug the water. Of course, said Lady Lejean, and inside, a thought that she hadn't known she was thinking, a thought that turned up out of the darkness behind the eyes, said, we are the most stupid creatures in the universe. One said, It is not good to act alone. She said, Of course. And once again a thought emerged from the darkness. I'm in trouble now. One said, And therefore you will have companions. No blame attaches. One should never be alone. Together resolve is strengthened. Motes began to twinkle in the air. Lady Lejean's body backed away automatically, and when she saw what was forming, she backed it away further. She had seen humans in all states of life and death, but seeing a body being spun out of raw matter was curiously disquieting, when you were currently inhabiting a similar one. It was one of those times when the stomach did the thinking, and thought it wanted to throw up. Six figures took shape, blinked and opened their eyes. Three of the figures were male, three were female. They were dressed in human-sized equivalents of the auditor's robes. The remaining auditors drew back, but one said, They will accompany you to the clockmaker, and matters will be resolved today. They will not eat or breathe. Ha! <laughs> thought one of the little voices that made up Lady Lejean's thinking. 
one of the figures whimpered. "'The body will breathe,' said her ladyship. "'You will not persuade it that air is not required.' She was aware of the choking noises. "'You are thinking, yes, we can exchange necessary materials with the outside world, and this is true,' she went on. "'But the body does not know that. It thinks it is dying. Let it breathe.' There was a series of gasps. "'And you will feel better shortly.' said her ladyship, and was enthralled to hear the inner voice think, "'These are your jailers, and you are already stronger than them.' One of the figures felt its face with a clumsy hand, and, panting, said, "'Whom do you speak to with your mouth?' "'You,' said Lady Lejean. "'Us?' "'This will take some explaining.' "'No,' said the auditor. "'Danger lies that way. We believe the body imposes a method of thought.' on the brain. No blame attaches. It is a malfunction. We will accompany you to the clockmaker. We will do this now. Not in those clothes, said Lady Lejean. You will frighten him. It may lead to irrational actions. There was a moment of silence. The auditors made flesh, looked hopelessly at one another. You have to talk with your mouth, Lady Lejean prompted. The minds stay inside the head. One said, What is wrong with these clothes? It is a simple shape found in many human cultures. Lady Lejean walked to the window. See the people down there, she said. You must dress in appropriate city fashions. Reluctantly, the auditors did so, and while they retained the greyness, they did give themselves clothes that would pass unnoticed in the street. Up to a point, anyway. "'Only those of female appearance should wear dresses,' Lady Lejean pointed out. A hovering grey shape said, "'Warning! Danger! The one calling itself Lady Lejean may give unsafe advice. Warning!' "'Understood,' said one of the incarnate ones. "'We know the way.' We will lead. It walked into the door. The auditors clustered around the door for a while, and then one of them glared at Lady Lejean, who smiled. Doorknob, she said. The auditor turned back to the door, stared at the brass knob, and then looked the door up and down. It dissolved into dust. Doorknob was simpler, said Lady Lejean. Tick. There were big mountains around the hub. But the ones towering above the temple didn't all have names, because there were simply too many of them. Only gods have enough time to name all the pebbles on a beach, but gods don't have the patience. Copperhead was small enough to be big enough to have a name. Lobsang awoke and saw its crooked peak towering above the lesser local mountains outlined against the sunrise. Sometimes the gods have no taste at all. They allow sunrises and sunsets in ridiculous pink and blue hues that any professional artist would dismiss as the work of some enthusiastic amateur who'd never looked at a real sunset. This was one of those sunrises. It was the kind of sunrise a man rises and looks at and says, No real sunrise could paint the sky surgical appliance pink. Nevertheless, it was beautiful, but not tasteful. Lobsang was half covered in a pile of dry bracken. There was no sign of the yeti. It was springtime here. There was still snow, but with the occasional patch of bare soil and a hint of green. He stared around and saw leaves in bud. 
Lutze was standing some way off, gazing up into a tree. He didn't turn his head as Lobsang approached. "'Where's the yeti?' "'He wouldn't go further than this. Can't ask a yeti to leave snow,' whispered Lutze. "'Oh!' whispered Lobsang. "'Um, why are we whispering?' "'Look at the bird!' It was perched on a branch by a fork in the tree, next to what looked like a birdhouse, and nibbling at a piece of roughly round wood it held in one claw. "'Must be an old nest they're repairing,' said Lutze. "'Can't have got that advanced this early in the season.' "'It looks like some kind of old box to me,' said Lobsang. He squinted to see it better. "'Is it an old... clock?' he added. "'Look at what the bird is nibbling,' suggested Lutze. "'Well, it looks like... a crude gear wheel, but why? "'Well spotted. That, lad, is a clock cuckoo. "'A young one, by the look of it, trying to build a nest that'll attract a mate. "'Not much chance of that, see? "'It's got the numerals all wrong, and it's stuck the hands on crooked.' "'A bird that builds clocks.' I thought a cuckoo clock was a clock with a mechanical cuckoo that came out when... And where do you think people got such a strange idea from? But that's some kind of miracle. Why? said Lutze. They barely go for more than half an hour. They keep lousy time, and the poor dumb males go frantic trying to keep them wound. But even to... Everything happens somewhere, I suppose, said Lutze. Not worth making too much of a fuss. Got any food left? Uh, no, we finished it last night, said Lobsang. He added, hopefully, uh, I heard tell that really advanced monks can live on the um, life force in the actual air itself. Only on the planet Sausage, I expect, said Lutze. No, we'll skirt Copperhead and find something in the valleys on the other side. Let's go, there's not much time. But time enough to watch a bird, thought Lobsang, as he let the world around him become blue and fade, and the thought was comforting. It was easier going without the snow on the ground, provided he avoided the strange resistance offered by bushes and long grass. Lutze walked on ahead, looking oddly colourful and unreal against the faded landscape. They went past the entrance to dwarf mines, but saw no one above ground. Lobsang was glad of that. The statues he had seen in the villages yesterday weren't dead, he knew, but merely frozen at a different speed of time. Lutze had forbidden him to go near anyone, but he needn't have bothered. Walking around the living statues was invasive somehow. It made it worse when you realised that they were moving, but very, very slowly. The sun had barely moved from the horizon when they came down through warmer woods on the rim side of the mountain. Here the landscape had a more domesticated air. It was woodland rather than forest. The game trail they'd been following crossed a creek at a point where there were cart tracks, old but still not overgrown. Lobsang looked behind him after he'd walked across the ford, and watched the water very slowly reclaim the shape of his footprints in the stream. He'd been trained in time-slicing on the snowfields above the valley, like the rest of the novices. That was so they couldn't come to any harm, the monks had said, although no one actually explained what harm they might come to. Outside the monastery, this was the first time Lobsang had sliced in a living landscape. It was marvellous. Birds hung in the sky. Early morning bumblebees hovered over the opening flowers, the world was a crystal made of living things. Lobsang slowed near a group of deer, cropping the grass, and watched as the nearest eye of one of them swivelled, with geological slowness, to watch him. He saw the skin move as the muscles underneath started to bunch for flight. "'Time for a smoke-o,' said Lutsang. The world around Lobsang speeded up. The deer fled, along with the magic of the moment. "'What's a smoke-o?' said Lobsang. He was annoyed. The quiet, slow world had been fun." "'You ever been to 4X?' "'No. There's a barman at the bunch of grapes from there, though. 
Lutze lit one of his skinny cigarettes. Don't mean much, he said. The barman everywhere is from there. Strange country. Big time source right in the middle. Very useful. Time and space all tangled up. Probably all that beer. Nice place, though. Now, you see that country down there? On one side of the clearing, the ground fell away steeply, showing treetops and, beyond, a small patchwork of fields tucked into a fold in the mountains. In the distance was a gorge, and Lobsang thought he could make out a bridge across it. "'Doesn't look much like a country,' he said. "'Looks more like a shelf.' "'That's which country?' said Lutze. "'And we're going to borrow a broomstick. "'Quickest way to Ankh-Borpork.' "'Only way to travel.' "'Isn't that, um, interfering with history?' I mean, I was told that sort of thing is all right up in the valleys, but down here in the world... Oh, it's absolutely forbidden, said Lutze. Cause it's interfering with history. Got to be careful of your witch, of course. Some of them are pretty canny. He caught Lobsang's expression. Look, that's why there's rules, understand, so that you think before you break them. But... Lutze sighed and pinched out the end of his cigarette. We're being watched, he said. Lobsang spun round. There were only trees and insects buzzing in the early morning air. Up there, said Lutze. There was a raven perched on the broken crown of a pine tree, shattered in some winter storm. It looked at them, looking at it. Caw, it said. It's just a raven, said Lobsang. There's lots of them in the valley. It was watching us when we stopped. There's ravens all over the mountain, sweeper. And when we met the yeti, Lutze persisted. That settles it, then. It's a coincidence. One raven couldn't move that fast. Maybe it's a special raven, said Lutze. Anyway, it's not one of our mountain ravens. It's a lowland raven. Mountain ravens croak. They don't caw. Why is it so interested in us? It's a bit... weird, thinking you're being followed by a bird, said Lobsang. When you get to my age, you notice things in the sky, said Lutze. He shrugged and gave a grin. You start worrying they might be vultures. They faded into time and vanished. The raven ruffled its feathers. Croak, it said. Damn! Tick! Lobsang felt around under the thatched eaves of the cottage, and his hand closed on the bristles of a broomstick that had been thrust amongst the reeds. This is rather like stealing, he said, as Lutze helped him down. No, it's not, said the sweeper taking the broomstick and holding it up so he could look along its length, and I'll tell you why. If we sort things out, we'll drop it off on our way back and she'll never know it's gone. And if we don't sort things out, well, she'll still never know it's gone. Honestly, they don't take much care of their sticks, witches. Look at the bristles on this one. I wouldn't use this to clean a pond. Oh, well, back into clock time, lad. I'd hate to fly one of these things while I was slicing. He straddled the stick and gripped the handle. It rose a little way. "'Good suspension, at least,' he said. Uh, "'You can have the comfy seat on the back. "'Hold tight to my own broom and make sure you wrap your robe around you. "'These things are pretty breezy.' "'Lobsang pulled himself aboard and the stick rose. "'As it drew level with the lower branches around the clearing, "'it brought Lutze to eye level with the raven. "'It shifted uneasily and turned its head this way and that, "'trying to fix both eyes on him. "'Are you going to caw or croak, I wonder?' said Lutze, apparently to himself. "'Croak?' said the raven. "'So you're not the raven we saw on the other side of the mountain, then?' "'Me? Gosh, no!' said the raven. "'That's croaking territory over there. Just checking.' The broom rose higher and set off above the trees in a hubwards direction. The raven ruffled its feathers and blinked. "'Damn!' it said. 
It shuffled around the tree to where the death of rats was sitting. Squeak! Look! If you want me to do this undercover work, you've got to get me a book on ornithology, OK? said Quoth. Let's go, or I'll never keep up. Tick! Death found famine in a fish restaurant in Genoa. He had a booth all to himself and was eating duck and dirty rice. Oh, said Famine, it's you. Yes, we must ride. You must have got my message. Pull up a chair, Famine hissed. They do a very good alligator sausage here. I said we must ride. Why? Death sat down and explained. Famine listened, although he never stopped eating. I see, he said at last. Thank you, but I think I shall sit this one out. Sit it out? You're a horseman. Yes, of course, but what is my role here? I beg your pardon. No famine appears to be involved, does it? A shortage of food, per se, as such? Well, no, not as such, obviously, but... So I would as it were, be turning up just a wave. No, thank you. You used to ride out every time, said Death accusingly. Famine waved a bone airily. We had proper apocalypses in those days, he said, and sucked at the bone. You could sink your teeth into them. Nevertheless, this is the end of the world. Famine pushed his plate aside and opened the menu. "'There are other worlds,' he said. "'You're too sentimental, Death. I've always said so.' Death drew himself up. Humans had created famine, too. Oh, there had always been droughts and locusts. But for a really good famine, for fertile land to be turned into a dust bowl by stupidity and avarice, you needed humans. Famine was arrogant. "'I am sorry,' he said, "'to have trespassed on your time.' He went outside, into the crowded street, all alone. The stick swooped down towards the plains and levelled off a few hundred feet above the ground. "'We're on our way now!' shouted Lutzay, pointing ahead. Lobsang looked down at a slim wooden tower hung with complicated boxes. There was another one in the far distance, a toothpick in the morning mist. "'Semaphore towers!' Lutzay shouted. "'Ever seen them?' "'Only in the city!' Lobsang shouted above the slipstream. "'It's the Grand Trunk!' "'the sweeper shouted back. "'Runs like an arrow all the way to the city. "'All we have to do is follow it.' "'Lobsang clung on. "'There was no snow beneath them, "'and it looked as though spring was well advanced. "'And therefore it was unfair that here, "'that much nearer the sun, "'the air was frigid "'and was being driven into his flesh "'by the wind of their travel. "'It's very cold up here. "'Yes, did I tell you about the double-knit combinations? "'Yes, I've got a spare pair in my sack.' "'You can have them when we stop. "'Your own personal pair. "'Yes, second best, but well darned. "'No, thank you. "'They've been washed. "'Lutzay? Yes? "'Why can't we slice when we're on this thing?' "'The tower was well past them. "'The next one was pencil-sized already. "'The black and white shutters on the boxes "'were twinkling in the sunlight. "'Do you know what happens if you slice time "'on a magically-powered vehicle "'travelling at more than seventy miles an hour?' No, me neither, and I don't want to find out. Tick. Igor opened the door before the second knock. 
and Igor might be filling coffins with earth in the cellar or up on the roof adjusting the lightning conductor, but a caller never had to knock twice. Lady Thip, he muttered, nodding his head. He looked blankly at the six figures behind her. We have called to inspect progress, said Lady Lejean. And these, ladies and gentlemen, Lady Thip? My associates, said her ladyship, matching Igor's blank stare. If you would be so kind as to step inside, I will see if the master is in, said Igor, observing the convention that a true butler never knows the whereabouts of anyone in the house until they decide they want it to be known. He backed through the door into the workshop and then lurched into the kitchen. Jeremy was calmly pouring a spoonful of medicine down the sink. That woman is here, he said, and she hath brought lawyers. Jeremy held out a hand, palm downwards, and examined it critically. "'You see, Igor,' he said, "'here we are, almost at the completion of our great work, "'and I remain absolutely calm. "'You could build a house on my hand. "'It is so steady.' "'Lawyers, sir,' said Igor, giving the word some extra spin. "'And?' "'Well, we have a lot of money,' said Igor, "'with the conviction of a man who has informally secreted "'a small but sensible amount of gold in his own bag.' "'And we have finished the clock,' said Jeremy, still watching his hand. "'We've been nearly finished for days,' said Igor darkly. "'If it wasn't for her, I reckon we could have caught that thunderstorm two days ago.' "'When's the next one?' Igor screwed up his face and banged his temple a couple of times with the palm of his hand. "'Unsettled conditions, with a low approaching from the rim,' he said. "'Can't promise anything with the thoppy weather you get here. "'Ha! Ah, back home the thunderstorms come running "'as soon as they see you put up the iron pole. "'So what do you want me to do about the lawyers?' "'Show them in, of course. We have nothing to hide.' "'Are you Thor, sir?' said Igor, "'whose carpet-bag couldn't be lifted with one hand. "'Please do it, Igor.' End of CD 6